I'm filmmaker John Borowski of the Serial Killer Documentaries, and you're listening to Midwest Monsters Podcast. Episode of the Midwest Monsters Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Grizzly Abner, and I'm joined by Professor Wagstaff, Venomous Vinny, Hot Toddy. <laughs> Good to be with you again, <laughs> friends. Please excuse the audio quality as we are still on lockdown in the pandemic, trying to keep our friends and loved ones safe and recording over Zoom which is not as good as recording over our soundboard, but what can you do? So uh, we're coming back at you today with an episode of probably our newest format that we've been running for about a year now, one that we really enjoy, uh, and it's uh, true crime. So we're going to, we you know what we do? We take a case uh, or a person and we watch a film based on it, and we talk about the true case and we talk about the film. And today, we are talking about the film Helter Skelter. Not Helter Skelter, Big Patty. <laughs> it's Helter Skelter. And uh, Charles Manson and the Manson family. So, uh, Professor's got some facts for us because he's always cooking them up in the lab. And so, <laughs> uh, hit us hit us with what you got, Professor. Or, or should we do... Let's, should we should roundtable first, right? Like... Manson, Manson family, our history with it. Someone else did yeah. it. I've talked too much. Sure. Uh, to be perfectly honest, until last year, this case never grabbed me in the way that some big true crime ones did. Uh, but with the 50th anniversary approaching for the that summer, uh, I really jumped into different events from Chappaquiddick to the moon landing. Uh, I really kind of celebrated each one. And with, at the time, uh, there was uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood coming out from Tarantino. And so it was just a culmination of that where I really dove into the case and became much more fascinated uh, last, just last year with it uh, than I had been in the past. But I think for me, at least it's very similar to summer of Sam in the sense of, I find the world swirling around the event more interesting than the event. Yeah. And so there's a lot of Hollywood history uh, stuff with the music industry and all kinds of other things involved with this case that make it just such a big story. And I, I hope that by the time we're done, listeners will either feel the same way or go dig around into some of that and see what we're talking about. All right. Vinny, what, what's your, what do you bring to this? I got into the Manson murders when I was in high school, which was the late night, mid, mid nineties. Um, you had, Axl Rose recording some of his songs on the spaghetti incident. Charlie was in the public lexicon still. He had, I saw an interview that I think it was Diane Sawyer did with him 
and uh, the Manson Girls. I was always I. There's a level of hero worship that I see for Charlie Manson that makes me sick, frankly. Yeah. Um, and people trying to act like, well, he never committed murder. It's like, well, we're splitting hairs at this point. Charlie Manson deserved to live the rest of his days in prison. Uh, but I was fascinated with the cult. I'm always fascinated by that kind of thing. How one person can hold that much sway over countless other people's minds blows me away. So that always really fascinated me. So in high school, I was really, really hard and heavy into the Manson case. Um, I haven't really revisited it over the years. It's one of those things where I kind of felt like I'd bled it dry back then. So this is really my first revisit to it again. And uh, still just as fascinated by it as I was then. A little more. It's weird when you go from everybody involved in the story was at least a couple years older than you to now you're 20 years older than everybody involved <laughs> except Charlie. So that puts yeah. a different person. When I, when I have a kid that is older than Leslie Van Houten was when she did this and Patricia, it gives, it just gives it a diff, me a different perspective on the it case. Makes it more sad too. Yes. Yeah, Toddy. Um, it's weird that you mentioned the uh, the Diane Sawyer thing because that's probably I, I I knew who he was and I knew a little bit about the crime or at least the the mint per you know uh, Sharon Tate. Um, but like uh, watching that interview and then watching them interview the um, the Manson girls because a couple of them are still crazy about him even after all those years and rotting in prison um but i remember um i might have watched that with my mom somehow it was brought up I, my I mom did. as much as i could watch anything i wanted read anything i wanted my mom really discouraged me from reading helter skelter and she didn't want me to watch the the movie which made me want to watch it even more right. uh, but back at the time when diane sawyer stuff came out helter skelter was not easy to find because um i don't know if they had ever really put it out on vhs at the time and um you know it was a long time before like the dvd release and stuff so it was nothing that was like really easy to to just go find anyways but um so i think with that uh, it started making me want to dig into it a little bit more so uh um i knew just listening talking from other people that they had mentioned um like that it was connected to a beetle album and that they were saying that when you play it backwards it told you to kill and um I remember a couple movies out at the time, like Trick or Treat and uh, Amityville too, were involved music and Satan. So, um, and this is uh, a couple years after the Satanic Panic. So, uh, um, I don't know. I just think I, not knowing a lot about it, and then being told that I shouldn't watch or see the movie uh, definitely piqued my interest of of why. So, that's probably my start into it. Um. Kind of like Professor, uh, a case that I'd never really gotten into. It just wasn't that fascinating to me, except for the cult aspect, uh, as you said, Benny. Um, so I, I'd never really done a deep dive into it until this, and uh, also, too, more interested after, um, you know, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and kind of the fun it had with it. Um, 
but there's just always been, you know, Charles Manson was always the boogeyman, right? Like in like, because he was part of the pop culture lexicon, like, you know, how many movies or TV shows says, oh man, they're as crazy as the Manson family. You know what I mean? Like just all the time you heard stuff like that. And so, um, really interesting to know what the myth was versus what the reality is. And, um, I bought this patch from Western evil a while back and it was like Mickey Mouse's body, but with Charles Manson's head. And I was so sick of Charles Manson after the last two weeks, I was ready to go rip it off my vest. But then I thought, but it's kind of a, a, it's kind of a smart patch. You know what I mean? Because he is as American in the the mythology as Mickey Mouse is right. But for different reasons and, and for the things that people project onto him, um, about fears and about just everything about what this country was producing at that time. And so, and that's really, that's why you got that tattoo of him and Elvis on your back. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Elvis and Charles Manson. Yep. Uh, <laughs> to Jessica White reference for those who don't know. Um, we're going to make Todd watch Wild and Wonderful Whites later. But yeah, so that's that's just kind of my exposure. You know, as much as I've been into true crime for the last almost twenty years, just never really cared much about the Manson family. So it was a nice opportunity to do a deep dive, and now I don't want to hear, read, or think about them for a long time. So let's let's talk about it for two hours. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Professor, spin away. Okay, so what we're going to do is we will approach it in a way that it would have been how the the general public consumed this, uh, because there had been events prior to this that we can briefly cover. So we'll talk about stuff before and after this, but this is really the meat of, of the crime. On the night of Friday, August 8th, leading into August 9th, it was uh, supposedly the hottest day of the year in L.A., and sometime after midnight at the home of Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate at 10,050 Cielo Drive, uh, intruders entered the home. Um, before they did, they ran into a youngster named Stephen Parent, who was leaving the property in his car. Uh, he had been there to visit the caretaker, William Garretson. I think they were looking at one of them selling like a, an alarm or a clock to the other. Yeah, the... Uh, the, the kid was there to try to sell a, a ra- like a radio alarm to the caretaker. Yeah. And, and so didn't even, didn't even sell it. <laughs> yeah. And the interesting thing too, is that by the end of the pitch that froze the time. And that was one of the things they used to estimate the time of death. Huh. That when he had unplugged it, it left it on that time and it gave him a rough idea that lined up with their estimates on the time of death. Um, but, on his way out, uh, he interacted with somebody at his car who slashed his hand open and unloaded, I think, four shots into his abdomen and chest, killing him. Uh, the intruders then went into the home. Um, the people there, all of whom were murdered uh, by these people, uh, one was Wojciech Frykowski, a Polish friend of Roman Polanski, who was beaten with the gun 13 times in the head, breaking off part of the grip and bending the barrel. And he was stabbed 51, 51 times. Uh, Frykowski's lover, Abigail Folger, the heiress to the Folger's Coffee Fortune, who was uh, something I always found interesting and I knew before 
preparing for this, uh, a little detail about her. She was a social worker in Watts, um, was filthy rich, but that's what she did with, she was doing with her life. So, um, she initially escaped the house as did Frykowski. They were both found out on the lawn. Um, she was subsequently tackled out there and collectively stabbed, uh, over 28 times. And during this attack, she at one point told them, you've got me. I'm already dead. Uh, inside Jay Sebring, who was a friend and former lover of Sharon Tate, uh, was also a world famous hairdresser. I think that's kind of really understated in, in remembering these people and understanding. Cause he, I know it's always mentioned that he was, but this guy was a big deal. Um, he, at one point I read was flown to the other side of the world, I think to cut Steve McQueen or Frank Sinatra's hair. And the total cost of that whole thing was $20,000. Um, <laughs> This guy was the first big male hairdresser. Um, he cut the hair for all of the Rat Pack. And so I really wanted to emphasize, like, this wasn't just a former boyfriend of Sharon Tate. This guy was a big deal in Los Angeles. Um, and he, he learned to cut hair in the military. Yes. Yep. Very true. <laughs> um, he was shot after defending uh, Sharon, who they were getting rough with. They were putting a rope around their necks. And he pointed out that she was pregnant. So. Uh, they returned uh, him with a favor of shooting him. Um, he was then stabbed seven times and died right there on the floor. And Sharon Tate, actress and model, wife of Roman Polanski, who was eight and a half months pregnant, was stabbed 16 times and died along with her unborn son. Uh, before exiting, the assailants dipped a towel in her blood and wrote pig on the front door. The bodies were discovered by the housekeeper the following morning. Um, do you guys want to want to say anything on this initial scene before I jump into the second night? Are we going to get? Really. Are we going to? Do you? I don't want to mess with your plans. Are we going to get into why they wrote pig and what the whole plan was? Yeah. All right. We'll get to that. Is what you're saying? Yeah. Okay. So I won't. I won't say anything about it now. So. Okay. okay so the following night, uh, Lino and Rosemary Labiaca dropped their daughter off at her residence. They were on their way home when they stopped at a gas station. Many believe it's the gas station that James Dean last stopped at before he went out and was killed in a car wreck. Um, while there, they got a newspaper, and the attendant working there noted and remembered uh, that Rosemary was instantly devastated by the headlines about the murders at the Polanski home, um, visibly shaken by it. And this was the last time they were seen alive. Um, more than likely they drove home talking about it and how insane it was. Little did they know that out of the millions of people living in Los Angeles, they were about to be house number two. Uh, in the middle of that night, uh, intruders invaded the home, woke them, tied them up, and kept them in separate rooms. Lino was stabbed to death. He was stabbed numerous times, including the first being a bayonet into his neck. Uh, war was carved into his stomach and a knife left in both his neck and fork. Um, Rosemary was stabbed 41 times, most of which were post-mortem. And written on the walls was Rise and Death to Pigs. And Helter Skelter was written on the refrigerator <laughs> by who we will soon find out, the intellectual group that they were. Um, we really can't properly articulate the fear that this caused, starting in Los Angeles and then out across the country. Um, Many people view it as the end of, you know, the love movement and right there before the, you know, at the end of the 60s. I personally think 
that might be a little much. I think you could view even the stabbing at Altamont later that year at the Stones concert as the end of that. But nonetheless, um, this absolutely crippled Los Angeles. Uh, entertainers, wealthy people bought a ton of guns, home security systems, guard dogs. Um, and when we look back on this, obviously everybody listening knows who did it, but they didn't. And they didn't for months. And they didn't know if this was going to happen again. Um, and it, you know, we really can't put into words how scary this would have been because we had no Bundy, Gacy. We didn't have these big sensational serial killer stories. There'd been the Boston Strangler. Um, and there been things that seem like you know just lifetimes away so this would would have been insanely jolting um and i never gathered that until i watched this movie i just because i had never dove deep into the case did not realize there was such a gap in time from the crimes to when they were caught and and prosecuted um which so the, the film did a really good job of portraying that and so as we go through this stuff it's pretty clear that people weren't working together on these cases. Uh, jurisdictions did, did not interact. Detectives assigned to the different cases that I just covered didn't interact. And there is a good chance these would have went unsolved if our criminals weren't so stupid. Um, and that's, that's just the, the, the plain truth of it. So basically enter the Manson family, uh, where it begins with them and the unraveling um, we have not only they're all living out at spawn ranch uh, a former ranch used in tons of uh, tv and film Lone Ranger. Dueling, yeah duel in the sun was a film with gregory peck i know they used there there was a string of them uh yeah lots of television shows in the early 60s uh filmed there um and so we had basically this cult living out there with a man uh, named George Spawn, who was basically blind at that point, and he had, in particular, a couple of girls that took care of him, cooked for him, cleaned the place, and so took he, care of him, all right. Took care was, of him, um, and so it was a very bizarre setup out there. Um, and we had, I think, about a week later, a raid there because of a car theft ring. And so this is where we begin to really get the family as the family on the radar of law enforcement. Um, eventually, not long after they fled this area to Barker Ranch, which is out in Death Valley. Um, and we'll go into a lot of his bullshit that he was feeding them that, that ties into Death Valley and what they were doing out there. Um, but so they went out there and what got them really caught was a combination of two things. One, vandalism. Uh, They destroyed an earth mover, uh, I think at a state park there. And that's what sent law enforcement out there. When they got out there, you had people sleeping with shotguns in between them. Uh, That's also where Charles Manson was apprehended, I think, last out of everyone. Uh, Does anybody remember the measurements of the space he was in? It was, was it one and a half I think so. By one and a half feet by three feet. Yeah. Yeah. So they had cleared house and brought everybody out of here and they're going in and we've got a guy in there with a candle because there's no light and he's trying to look around. And as he's moving the candle around to look at different portions, he notices hair 
from her mastermind criminal hair hanging out of the cabinet door where Charles Manson had climbed in a space that would have been snug for a small child and closed the door on his hair. Um, but this... It was so got, small they wouldn't have even looked in it. Yeah. Right. Had his hair not been stained. They're like, oh, no person could hide in there. Yeah. Yes, and the man who we would lo- later learn uh, valued humans more or valued animals more than humans uh, got out in nothing but buckskin. Uh, just one of the millions of contradictions that came out of his mouth. <laughs> um, and so at the same time, we've got things unraveling with a prior murder case. To Pause, pause real quick. Yes. So buckskins are like leather. This dude is hanging out in Death Valley in all leather. Yeah. And you know he's wearing no draws. <laughs> right. Go proceed. So just remember, if you want to think about how the 60s smelled, reference this. <laughs> um, and so the other thing uh, that really started to unravel this was the murder of a man named Gary Hinman. He was a music teacher. Uh, and he was held hostage for two days at his place uh, by members of the Manson family who believed that he was very wealthy. They tried to coerce him into not only giving them money and assets, uh, but also joining their family. Didn't go yeah. well. Now, he was also well known for being a good mescaline cook. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, that's, so why, that's why they thought he had money. Because yeah. he was dealing to him. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, eventually Manson arrived and sliced his ear with a sword, as you'll have. Um, and ultimately, he was stabbed to death. This, all, this ended up implicating a girl from the Manson family, um, Susan Atkins, who also went by Sadie. And while she was locked up with charges for this, she began to brag about the other things that she'd been a part of. And eventually, without going through the bazillion details there are about this, she basically spilled the beans on all of it and, and started to help them connect the dots. And initially she was going to be their witness. They were going to try and, and get her a reduced punishment. And then she of course, pieced out on that. She said, no, I'm going to, I'm going to go back on everything I said. I'm not going to help you. I'm not going to be a part of helping you. And part of the agreement was they weren't allowed to use the grand jury testimony anyway. Yeah. So she laid it all out for them, and then they couldn't even use it. Yep. And so the reason that we know everything about the Manson family in great detail and through honesty is because of a girl named Linda Kasabian. That is who ultimately became uh, the witness for the prosecution. Uh, She had already fled, like many of them, to other portions of the country. They brought her back. She was initially being charged with conspiracy to murder and all the other stuff that they were because she was present through both evenings of these murders um, at at the two houses we mentioned at the beginning of the show. And so she had firsthand knowledge of who was there, especially the first night, who did what. And the reason, like I said, that that we know the case now and what happened is because of her. Um, So... What do you guys want to talk about in regards to the family, their philosophy, things they did? Well, I guess to we can kind of touch on what what this family was, what it consisted of. By this point, all most of these people are in their early twenties. Charlie is in his mid thirties at this point. 
Charlie's in his mid-30s and has lived half of his life in boys' reformatories and, and jail. So he, he has been he, – he's not been out as much as he's been in. Ah, lock me so, up, man. I like it, man. That's where I live, dig. You know, that's, that's where I spend my <laughs> life. That's my home, man. So he takes all of these different jailhouse and criminal <clears throat> enterprises and, like, he's a pimp. Yeah. That's how he gets men to do what he wants. He offers them women. He takes these women who are largely runaways, castaways from their family, lost, looking for their way. He cozies up to them, makes them feel important and pretty, and then slowly, because he, he knew the type he was looking for. Like, Charlie, Charlie was nuts, but Charlie was slick, too. Charlie understood human psychology better than a lot of motherfuckers out there. So He was, he was a con man. And, and absolutely. He, he was a good con man. He was you know? nuts, but yeah. he, at the same time, was kind of a criminal genius. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so yeah, that, that, so that gives a little perspective on how he was able to, to get people to do these things. And, and, and not only that, let's not forget dosing them with LSD constantly. Oh, Which yeah. goes and, back to his, his experience with pimping. And a lot of people say Charlie was either not dosing at all, at all or taking a much lower dosage so that yeah. he would keep his cognitive abilities while Easy they were all that. effed up. Yeah. And it's crazy. But at the same time, you're kind of awestruck by it. Because when he talks, you wouldn't think he's that intelligent. <laughs> right. Oh, man. Yeah. To watch his cuckoo interviews in prison, you know, where he's standing up and flapping his arms around. And, you know, yeah, you would not think so. But, yeah. He's... I still feel like a lot of that was show. Okay. I mean, I, don't, I think he was crazy. But I think he turned it up because he enjoyed it. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, because people being scared of him or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He relished it. He had a mythos to uphold, and he knew that. Yes. like he knew that that was powerful for him. Yep. And so he he loved he loved that he could still scare people behind bars. Yeah. Um. Were you going to give a like a quick bio on Charlie, or should I do that? Go for it. So, Charlie, born in Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, born to the, his name was No Name Maddox when he was born. Uh, his mother doesn't know who his father was. Um, and at one point in his youth, his mother sold him for a pitcher of beer at a bar. Um, he ended up fleeing and heading to Indianapolis. He, he was passed around between shitty relatives. He ran. He ended up getting the last name from one of uh, his mother's boyfriend, right? Yeah. Who gave yeah. him his last name? Okay. Yep, so he leaves Cincinnati and heads to Indianapolis. Where that he has, big city. Yeah, where he's homeless, uh, hanging out in Indy at the age of 12, and manages to procure an apartment and a stolen vehicle at that age. I'm trying to think of the time frames if he would have been there around Jim Jones. Probably that's a little was, earlier. That's what I was just thinking as you guys were saying. Uh, yeah, I think he would have been earlier. But yeah. In, so uh, at, at that point, you know, he gets picked up for something. He's in and out of boys' school and jail. Uh, he goes out to the bay first, which is 
weird connection to Jim Jones as well. Um, again, don't know the timeline, but goes from the Bay down to LA and that's where the story picks up. So that's just a quick and dirty kind of how he grew up. He had a, just a fucked background and he, uh, got in one of those prison interviews. He's like, my people, the hill people, and you know how hill people deal with you. The moonshine people, you come around and they kill you. You dig? And that's, that's how I became my kind of people because of my people. You know, like. No, Charlie, I don't dig. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a it was a really perfect chance opportunity for him to arrive at Haight Ashbury because he brought everything that he had learned behind cell in cells and preyed on the open, loving environment yes. of people who many of whom were completely lost. And on top of that, and he's admitted to this, most girls that are vagrant or runaways stems from daddy issues and running away from their dad or dads who have disowned them or dads who cheated on mom and ruined the marriage, et cetera. And so it was very easy. Yeah. It was very easy for him to capitalize on these girls by basically pulling that daddy bullshit with them. And so he filled a void for them that many of them were starving for. And it instantly made them moldable out there at the ranch. And, and, and when he gets to hate Ashbury, you know, the hippie era is on its way out. Sure. And so everyone who was there for that is looking for what's next. Like, you know, I came out here for this and there's still some of that element on hate in the hate. Like you yeah. go out there and there's still just people, you know, there, there's kids that just came there they thought they were hippies still it's like and, guys i don't know how to tell you uh they all became yuppies about five years later this isn't here now yeah it's gone so um yeah so there's just kind of a quick and dirty on on charlie getting to to where you know we go but uh does anybody want to say anything on the, the plan like why sure. why they did this so out at the ranch, it was all about what they preached was being one. It was surrendering your ego, your individuality, becoming one group. Um, and so he got them all in the same mindset. And I, a lot of this stuff, I think, is just hearsay and theories. But I think ultimately why things escalated is because Charlie was running out of options for his bullshit. Yes. I think that not only was he pissing off the wrong people involved with uh, motorcycle gangs, drug dealing, um, but he was also realizing he was, he was slowly losing the grip on his group if he didn't come up with solutions. And so uh, what spoke to him conveniently was the Beatles white album. Um, and, Charles Manson had been a, an obsessive music fan, especially with the Beatles throughout. And so he listened to this album and he was convinced, at least according to him, uh, that the album was speaking directly to him with bigger concepts that he was destined to carry out for them. He was the fifth angel uh, <laughs> to the Beatles. And I won't go through all of the different tracks that spoke to him, uh, but the main one to mention, at least for a crash course, is Helter Skelter. Uh, 
before going into what Helder Skelter was to this group, I want to point out Helder Skelter was written about a British roller coaster. Um, I had heard water slide. I thought it was about yeah, a slide. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, well, yeah, it's basically a slide. It, it's it, like they have it at carnivals. It, you go down and it spins around, and that's what the lyrics are talking about. You go back to the top of the slide where I stop and I turn, blah blah blah. And so it was about an amusement park ride, basically. Uh, and let's also to, pause to say that that song is a straight banger. Like that song <laughs> kills. Like that song is so good. It it definitely you know was an influence for, you know, early metal and early punk. I mean, the, because oh, yeah. of the style and just like, just how, just how raw it is. Yeah. And you think about like 67, 68 rewinding three years and listen to what the Beatles were putting out. And then you hear that these guys were evolving quickly. Um, but so according to Charlie, this song was referencing the race war that was for sure coming. Uh, and, to put everything in context, in case people don't know this, uh, Charles Manson was an incredible racist. Um, yes. Like, he, that's often, I think, not fully articulated. Uh, he thought women uh, solely were for serving uh, sexually and waiting on him. He And he, he it showed in the way that he treated his followers. Uh, but he also... Uh, was very, very vocally despicable about um, people of color and uh, the Jewish faith. And so with Helder Skelder, and as uh, the prosecutor said numerous times, he was always worried it was too hard to believe, that it was too fantastic that a jury wouldn't actually believe it. But according to them, Helder Skelder was uh, basically a race war coming, one that they needed to ignite, and that eventually they would spill out into the streets of every major city and and the blacks would uh triumph they would they would win and then in true charlie manson fashion they wouldn't know how to leave because they didn't have the experience to and who would they turn to charles manson and the manson family who at that point according to this plan would be out in death valley in a secret hole in the earth uh where they would be living down in this wonderful area that the walls glowed and the temperature was perfect around the clock and they would lead Charlie and his disciples up to rule the earth. I mean, it sounds completely plausible to me. Don't you guys think? Yeah. Not racist at all. Yeah. <laughs> and so the other tie-ins was uh, piggies referencing uh, kind of decadence and the wealth <laughs> gap. Um, and another so, song on the album. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Blackbird does have the the lyrics. You were waiting for this moment to arise. So you have Rise, Piggy, uh, the Hinman murder, the first one, it said political Piggy on the wall. And why they were doing this was literally they were trying to make it look like black people had done it. That was yeah. the goal. And they yep, were trying they were to make it so despicable that it would make white America disgusted and angry thus starting the race war (laughs) and basically it all kicked off because there had been an altercation between a family member and a black guy who was a drug dealer and uh i think tex stabbed the guy and they thought that they killed him 
And the next day, the news reported that a Black Panther was stabbed to death, and they thought that it was the guy they had stabbed, but he ended up living. And so... Is that the one with the great name, like Big Patootie or something? I yes, can't remember his name. Yes. Yeah. yeah, Charlie shot him in the stomach. That's it. Shot him in the stomach, yeah. And so they were convinced that they had killed this Black Panther, but it was a different guy. And so that's why Charlie, at his wit's end, realizing his bullshit was running out, was like, all right, man, that's it. Now we killed Black Panther. They're going to be after us now. We got to we gotta ignite the race war now. And so that's, that's what kicked it off. Yeah. You did? Um, and so just a quick tie-in. The, the places that they went, there was no direct motive other than those places were two things. They represented wealth and the members of the family, at least one or two of them on, on each occasion, were familiar with the layout of the place. In the past, and this is a very interesting side story, which I won't go deeply into, but Manson desperately wanted to be a recording artist. And by chance, the drummer for the Beach Boys, Dennis Wilson, picked up a couple of hitchhikers who turned out to be Manson girls. This evolved into the Manson family, a large chunk of them, moving into Wilson's home on the Sunset uh, Strip, or he was on Sunset Boulevard, and completely robbed him blind over and over again. They eventually had to get him evicted, um, and Wilson never recovered over being associated with them after the murders, because he knew them well before that. Well, Wilson's friend Terry Melcher, Doris Day's son, lived at 10,050 Cielo Drive. And so Manson and Tex had been there before. In one occasion, Manson had come there looking for Melcher and was told this is the Polanski house where Sharon Tate saw him and even referenced who was that odd little guy after he left. So they actually saw each other, the guy that would eventually order her death. It's very chilling. And we get we get a nice retelling of that scene in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yes. And, and so they went not, back there. Go ahead, Benny. Not that it matters, but something that strikes me is like throughout time, sometimes uh, what what people were viewed as attractive in a different era doesn't translate decades later. Sharon Tate, even by today's standards was drop-dead gorgeous. She was breathless. Not, yeah. not that that means anything, or but it's just an observation. Are you saying you wouldn't care if she was ugly and she got killed? <laughs> I. Why would you do this to me? You're why not. would you put those words in my mouth? You are canceled, uh, Benny. <laughs> but anyway, not that it matters, but it was just an observation that I made that sometimes celebrities who were hot back then you don't really see it now, but Sharon Tate absolutely, but even by today's standards, was absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. And well, so, this is your way of trying to dig your way out of saying that you didn't think Ted Bundy was a good-looking guy. It's still not working. <laughs> so, basically, Manson's that. interactions with them had landed him small prospects of at least them entertaining the idea of checking out Manson. At one point, he even got in a recording studio uh, where he got nervous and repeatedly choked. Uh, but so he had went back out there and Melcher had moved. And so that was just a house. He was familiar with the layout. And so he sent out members of his family, which we would go on to learn through Kasabian for sure. On the first night was Tex, Susan Watkins and, uh, Patricia Krenwinkel. And they would be responsible for that. One of the more upsetting 
Susan Atkins? Yeah, Susan Atkins. And one of the more upsetting things from that night was that Atkins recounted her stabbing of Tate, where Tate was begging uh, her to just let her live long enough to have her child. She even said, you can take me with you wherever you are, and you can kill me after I have the baby. Please just let me live to have my baby. And uh, Watkins... um, thoughtful response was look bitch i have no mercy for you and then proceeded to stab her 16 times some of that in the stomach uh awful killing her at eight and a half months pregnant um but because of kasabian we know uh how these nights went down that the second night was not as messy because they had talked about how it didn't go well the reason for that was because at the first on the first night they had told the victims you're all going to die which caused them uh, understandably, to freak out. And so Manson pointed out, I'm going to go with you and show you how to do it. And in true Charlie fashion, he went up, scoped things out, and showed them how to do it, and then got his little cowardly ass in the car and drove off and left them there to do the killing. Uh, oh, where that night, yeah. So on that night, uh, Atkins was not a part of that. Krenwinkel, Tex Watson, and Leslie Van Houten were. Um, and something important to point out that's a little bit different than the rest. She was still a part of it. She enabled it. She was a co-conspirator for murder. But Leslie Van Houten stabbed uh, the, the woman, uh, Rosemary, approximately 16 times post-mortem. So, which, which people somehow act like that lets her off the hook. No, it certainly doesn't let her off the hook, but that's vastly different than actively taking the life out of somebody's body. I don't know. Well, yeah, she, uh, yeah, I I don't want it to come off like I'm defending her for any purpose other than her situation was a little bit different um, compared to the natural animalistic killing that came out of the rest of them. I will agree with that. But I think what changes everything for me is her behavior during the trial. I would totally agree. Um, some, so, some, some say that, that her stabbing her that, that many times post-mortem was like she did not have the, the animal instinct to be as brutal and nasty as the others. But like they were like, right. well, here, you have to stab her. Like You're a part of this. And so it was more like a peer pressure sort of thing for her to do it to also implicate her right in the, the, the crime. Yeah. So, I mean, I think she's up for parole again. She's still alive. She is. Uh, and I hope that they leave her in there forever. I always wanted, uh, when Susan Watkins was, uh, became terminally ill, I wanted them to remind her of her famous quote that she was very share, proud to share with the world, not to be petty, uh, about it. But, um, they, I think there's something important to point out here. I think that Manson gets all of this dumped on him as brainwashing, and I don't buy that. I think that Susan Atkins was going to be a killer no matter what. No, she, yeah. had already, she had already, uh, as a youth, been uh, apprehended, I think, up in Oregon carrying a gun, and she made a statement to, I think, uh, either a, I can't remember if it was just a citizen or a cop, but she said, if nobody had been here, I would have, I wanted to shoot you in the head. And this is years and years before she met Charles Manson. There was something off with her and Krenwinkel and especially Tex Watson 
Tex Watson was the only person to put his hands on all seven victims between these two nights. Um, these guys were killers. And I, I get frustrated when I hear the explanation of LSD and being strung out and brainwashed. Uh, guys, millions of, of young people did a lot of acid. Many of them did more than these guys, and they managed to not stab anybody 50 times. That's not a sole excuse. And I think also what makes it just just as interesting of a case is knowing that, that this intersection happened where I think Charlie got a little bit more uh, in terms of, of chewing the, with what he bit off than he realized. And he had, I mean, some some really serious cold characters that went out and acted on these. Oh, yeah. Characters. Charlie's henchmen were were more dangerous than Charlie was physically. like. Charlie would order you dead. Yeah. And Charlie probably killed somebody along the way. But Charlie wasn't going to be like Tex and some of his other henchmen who these motherfuckers were cold-blooded killers. Yeah. But but fuck Charlie nonetheless. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He was where he belonged. Um, just one other thing real quick before we can either jump into some more thoughts or the TV movie. Uh, but just... The, the the court case was absolutely wild. Yeah, um, please, please country, go into that briefly. Yeah, the country was absolutely fascinated with it. This is where America began to learn and see the Manson family, and it's very easy to laugh at a lot of it now, but it wasn't then. They were scary. You had these three girls walking hand-in-hand, hand, singing hymns that they'd made up, uh, eventually showing up with X's in their forehead. And I don't know if they'd seen Charlie first or it got relayed to him or how it happened, but the perception either way was that they had shown up with the same things that he was communicating with them. Oh, yeah, shaved their heads. Yeah. Shaved their heads, which was a real good look for Patricia Krenwinkle. Woo. Yeah. Um, and so, well, and then let's, let's, and don't forget all of the Manson family members, outside of the courthouse pulling these same crazy ass stunts like and yeah. just in general the the manson family was everything that parents of the hippie generation were terrified of their kids becoming yeah like, and the unfortunate thing is they couldn't have been further from what hippies were mm-hmm. but but they got to personify what people yeah. imagined them to be um and so with this court case, it was drawn out for quite a long time, simply, I think, in large part because of the behavior of the defendants. They raised hell regularly. They had inept representation half the time because they kept firing people and picking their that own. That and Charlie trying to represent himself. Yeah, that didn't go well. And kudos to the judge for telling him eventually, you're not allowed. You're not competent to, to do this. And he would not allow him to do that, uh, but just lots. And that's of and that's why he put the X. And that's why he put the X on his forehead. Yeah, because he says I I, I don't I don't count I don't matter anymore I'm not a real yep. person. So he carved he the X himself out of society. Yep. And so uh, you know, just some other notable things that kind of almost fed into the the myth swirling around this with, um, like uh, Leslie Van Houten's lawyer ended up disappearing. Uh, just all kinds of crazy stuff with threats being made by family members who are still out. 
And that's another element of this to remember is when this is happening, Los Angeles doesn't know if they have all of the killers. There are still members of the Manson family of which they don't know how many there are still out in the city. And so it was very uncomfortable. There was a lot of uncertainty. And then you got these crazy bastards walking through the courthouse. Like it's a game. They're skipping. They're void of remorse or emotion. Whether when they're, yeah, it's just one big game to them. And you've, if you dig into like the book, Helder Skeller, which I would highly recommend, it's as thorough as it gets. Uh, details the court proceedings in in every way you could imagine, and you cannot keep track of all of the bullshit that these family members spout off in there. Um, talking about their their mantra was that uh, you know Charlie is love. Part of love is killing someone because you're releasing them from this world. I, it just half of what they speak is in contradiction constantly none of it makes sense they're just talking right out of their ass because they've been out in this bubble in the middle of the desert um but yeah the 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 court case really kind of informed the american public of who these people were i mean they were on the cover of life magazine within a week of of all of this getting underway in december of 69 and they scared the hell out of people and even bugliosi the prosecutor said that at one point Charlie stared at him and his watch stopped. And this guy doesn't buy into the goofy shit. And even he said early on, I wasn't exactly sure what I was dealing with in that, in that moment. Yeah. That always struck me when I read Helter Skelter and Bugliosi's talked about it since. Yeah. That he's dead serious. And, and you're right. He's a guy who is, his business is facts and evidence and said right. that Charlie was staring dead at him and, that's when he real looked down and his watch had stopped. Yeah. They portray wild. that good in the film. Yeah, they do. Uh, anything else with the court case or ending to this? Uh, there, uh, the shit Charlie pulled where he flashed the newspaper to the jury. Oh, yeah. Where Nixon, Nixon had said they were guilty. Like, Charlie was nuts. Yeah, he was trying to get that mistrial. But, man, Charlie, Charlie was sharp. Yep. And thankfully, the judge didn't mess around. The one ended up having to get dismissed. But uh, the one that finished the trial, at one point, Charlie leapt over the table in a way that people still describe as not understanding how a guy that size could have been that strong. But he leapt at him. And the judge even told him, he goes, because all of the, the defense lawyers were like, we need a mistrial. You're biased now. He tried to attack you. And he said, not going to get that easy. Not not going to happen. And so yeah. they saw it through. And ultimately, they uh, were all found guilty of conspiracy to commit murder and murder in the first degree. Uh, and were sentenced to the gas chamber. Then California uh, reversed course on execution. How many years later was that? 72. So, so not three, long after. So two or three years later, California abolishes the death penalty. So they're their sentences are immediately commuted to life in prison. Yep, and even though they went back to it, they didn't go back to the original punishment for them uh, where they spent the rest of their life in prison for those that have died. Uh, Tex Watson stayed in Texas where he had his own Is he legal dead problems there. No, no, he's got an online ministry and a family. He's out? No. 
Yeah. Oh my god. He's he's like the pastor of the the jail prison. Yeah, the, Patricia, the, the, the jail church. Patricia uh, Krenwinkel is currently the in in the state of California, she is the woman serving the longest sentence in California. She's yeah. been in prison longer than any other woman in the state of California. And the only reason she's been in there longer is because Susan Atkins died at a number of few years ago. And Leslie Van Houten was let out later in the 70s because they decided she needed another trial because her lawyer had went missing and ended up dead. And so they said, oh, nope, that's not justice. Let's give you another trial. So she was out on bond. She lived out and was out in public uh, at least for a number of weeks during that time where they brought her back in and found the same exact results. Leslie Van Houten was the only Manson girl I ever thought was attractive. <laughs> yeah, she was pretty. She was Old very pretty, pretty when she was young. Yeah, she was. Uh, I will also say that while behind bars, uh, Tex was not the only one to, to repent and convert. Uh, Susan Atkins, you can still get online and find Bible studies that she wrote. Yeah. I just, I'm curious how Tex is not working for the Trump administration, for one. Um, <laughs> But it's weird, um, especially digging in the Manson stuff, um, Jim Jones, all that stuff. Um, it's kind of crazy, the parallels that we are dealing with in our current times with many loved family members and friends who are on the Trump train. Um, so just saying, we'll get too into that. But uh, anyways, uh, the thought I was going to go with, because you, uh, you brought up the Beach Boy thing. Um, but... Um, so this, what, what, when did the Tate murders happen? It was like the 8th and 9th were the two murders. So the, yeah, the, follow weekend. the following weekend is Woodstock in New York. So, yep. um, one, it's just kind of crazy that, uh, a festival of love is happening on one side of, uh, of the country when this is going on on the other, but you kind of mentioned a lot too, how they blame drugs and LSD. Let's be real. What happened at Woodstock? There's a lot of drugs going on and, they weren't murdering and stuff there, so it's a cop out. Yeah, um, I don't know. It's it's uh, it's it's really bizarre to me, and um, uh, even weirder is is some of the people that um, almost kind of like like I mean, it's I won't dog this shit out for having a patch on his jacket, but uh, it's weird to me the people that like uh, almost idolize Charlie Manson, like he's this cool like rock god. There's a lot of people who are like. Man, Charlie never committed murder. It's bullshit. He got, and it's like, well, Charlie was absolutely involved, first of all. Yeah. But that's also yeah, like, like saying bully, that Adolf you, Hitler never killed anybody. It's like if you right. bully someone into committing suicide, you are accountable for that, right? Right. So, yeah. Charlie was going to end up back in prison one way or another at some point. We know for that's, a fact that's just Charlie Manson. He basically took a sword to one guy's ear. He shot another one in the stomach. He was probably involved in the killing of a stuntman, Shorty Shea, which I don't think we'd mentioned. That happened later that month in August, um, where they thought, they thought he, he had on. snitched on their first raid dealing with car theft. Which, by the way, if no one knows what the car theft ring was, they were stealing Beetles, Volkswagen Beetles, and turning them into dune buggies. So there's that. To use as their horses in the upcoming yes. revolution, race war, etc. Which we're right. we're right in the middle of again. Um, anyways, um, 
I lost track there because uh, my thoughts are, are short. You're getting old. I, I am getting old. Um, oh, I was going to mention, too, uh, uh, kind of what I think of Manson as now is uh, I don't know if I felt this way before in South Park, just like we were thinking the same thing. But he kept trying to escape from prison, and all I kept picturing was like almost like Wiley Coyote, because of like all these crazy schemes he was trying to come up with. And I'm pretty sure it was South Park that uh, put in an episode where he's basically Wiley Coyote, um, <laughs> like ordering the wings from Ab, Acme, and um, but yeah, he was just doing some really bizarre shit. Um, and it's really sad to me of all the crazy shit um, that he does. And was it um, was it Charlie Manson that you were? Somebody had made T-shirts. Wilson, you were talking about it, and uh, they happened to have a T-shirt on, and were in somewhere yep. where maybe somebody was either—I I don't think they were the victim, but they lived during the time in yep, California. It was a um, mess syndicate, a uh, guy that I occasionally buy shirts from on Instagram, sells on there. I think it was him, but he—I don't even think it was a shirt necessarily that he had made, but he had a funny Manson shirt on, and they, it was in line at like an In-N-Out Burger or McDonald's. And there was a woman that got into an argument. Um, and I think he kind of showed a little bit of remorse on the post about it. But she told him, she's like, you weren't living, honey. You weren't here when that happened and how scary and upsetting that was. And there was a lot of people here in Los Angeles who don't think that shit's funny to wear around now. So I, and that, I, I think specifically there. That also speaks to Leslie Van Houten has currently been recommended for parole and I believe that as long as there is a LaBianca relative alive, she will never see freedom. And I don't yep. think that she should. Uh, Leslie Van Houten got a life when she really shouldn't have because she was given a death penalty. And that yeah. lucked out and she ended up with a life she no, wouldn't have had otherwise. And I say, don't press your luck. You know, live out yeah. the rest of your days. You've got life in prison. You deserve it. Uh, all right. So before we switch to the film, can we just shoot real hard on Manson and the family? Like just talk as much shit as we want real quick. <laughs> yeah, sure. One thing I did want to point out uh, just to follow up on a couple of things that were said that I always uh, think is incredibly touching and compelling. And you can look it up on YouTube. Anybody listening uh, every year when the uh, parole hearings would happen for the different various members of the family, Sharon Tate's mom would show up and she would sit at the table with them and she would tell them exactly what they did, what they robbed from her and other people and why they shouldn't ever be allowed out. And she did not miss a single meeting. They videotaped it. It's public record. It's on YouTube. When Sharon's mom passed away, her sister Patty, her sister. just like Sharon, showed up every single one of them. And that family has carried on the legacy. Sharon's mom created a victim's advocate group in L.A., raised tons of money and awareness uh, to help people who went through similar things like they did. They did a lot of good things in the wake of the loss of her and her child's life. But I really think it's incredibly effective to inform yourself, if you're interested in this case, by watching that. Because that's when the girls are a little bit older and that and reality set in and they've denounced Charlie and the romanticism that people like to hurl at this shit. And you see them as older women with their lives robbed because I don't have a lot of sympathy for them because they killed people, obviously, but their lives were taken from them too. They're sad. That, that is, that is, had I, I, I do have a little bit of sympathy for them, you know, in the fact that they were 
18 to 20 some years old when they did this and they 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 forfeited their entire lives to live yep. behind walls and fences and bars but like yeah. i said they forfeited their lives sure. oh, by choosing to do, it, yeah by choosing to do what they did sobering. and you know if and if they have truly repented and and feel genuine remorse for what they did good I'm happy yep. for them, uh, but that don't take away the hurt that you put on every, every one of these families Without back question. then. And also, I would like to point out, these murders weren't the last time that you would deal with the Manson family members, because Squeaky tried to assassinate, went to jail. Yeah, tried to assassinate President Ford. Of all the presidents to try and assassinate. Nobody cared about Ford. Yeah, he was an utter failure anyway. Yeah, nobody cared about him. You know, and that's the thing. You know, you can forgive, but you don't have to forget, right? Right, so, right. So we can forgive their actions, um, but we don't have to forget what they did and give them the possibility of doing it again. Without question. Um, there's a when you're talking about roasting on them. There's a documentary. It's not the easiest to find. I picked it up at a convention once, just a dubbed copy of it. It's just called Manson. Came out right around the time of all of this when the court case was going, um, and they filmed out at Spawn Ranch. So you have all of that still standing because Spawn Ranch, about a year after things really got going with this, burnt to the ground from wildfires that came through and just leveled it. Uh, reportedly, the, the Manson girls who were still free uh, stood out there and sung and danced because they thought that was actually Helder Skelder arriving. Uh, it was actually just their home burning to the ground, but so be it. Uh, <laughs> but that documentary showcases in a very intimate way what it was like out there with without the violence being a part of it like we usually have in these stories. And so these kids are lost. They, their sentences don't even make sense within one sentence at a time. They literally contradict themselves as they speak. They still believe that murdering is love and that Charlie is the second coming of Christ and the devil in one. I mean, just absolutely insane. And like, I can't begin to roast them. It's too, it's too much. <laughs> yeah. I, I won't roast the whole family as much as I'll just roast Charlie for being just a despicable idiot. Like just, yeah. What a nerd. Like, yeah. you know, like this dude, man, like to watch those videos with him, like, uh, yeah, man, I, I, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I'm Jesus. You're Jesus. There's a Chinese Jesus. There's a black Jesus. And I'm the devil too, you know? And uh, I was just so sick of watching Manson interviews. Like, oh, Carrie, Carrie was taking a nap and she woke up. And she's like, are you still watching this bullshit? And I was like, Oh man, I was like, we've got to put, we've got to put on some cooking shows after this because I just have to, I just have to unplug. Vinny, well, are you getting ready to do a '90s video, uh, like rap video? What's happening? Maybe. <laughs> I want so to go refill my glass before we jump into <laughs> the TV movie. Is a couple of things that I really thought about this time around with the case that could have possibly avoided. <laughs> All of this is one, why wasn't Charlie's parole violation addressed? It wasn't like he was flying off under the radar 
because he was out at Spawn Ranch. He he was with documented drug users, drug dealers, criminals. He was involved in all kinds of things that should have gotten him back in jail. And it is even admitted by one of his former probation officers uh, that he, they didn't address it because they were scared of him because he was just so erratic. So in theory, he he really, with violations, I think something occurred back in April of 69, he should have went to jail. And that would have disbanded that whole setup out there before he concocted his horse shit that really got going that summer. Um, and two, if he wouldn't have choked in the recording studio. Because the music, while not great, is nowhere near as abysmal as people make his music out to be. People like oh, to yeah. make fun of it. He's not a but bad musician. Look at this stuff up. It's his music is not that bad. For many many years, you could not hear it. It was a it's insanely expensive collector's item, like an initial pressing that had been put out. Uh, ironically, it was recorded August eighth, nineteen sixty eight. Wow. One year to the day of of that kicking off. But the music's not that bad. And if he, when he got in with the right people with Terry Melcher, if he hadn't choked like a bitch and messed up and got angry, who's to say he might not have at least had some modicum of success with the music that he so desperately wanted that could have avoided this mess. And that's one more bit that we left out because we just can't get into everything is that that's kind of why there were so many hangers on at the ranch and part of the family is because they thought he was going to become a rock star. Like they, they thought, that he was going to make it big. They thought he was going to catch a break. Like, you know, they, he had talked to these people. He knew Dennis Wilson. Like, so there was a, there was a portion of people who were there who were just, you know, they wanted to be Charlie's version of deadheads. Like they, they thought that, that, so yeah, they weren't there for the murder. They weren't there for Helder Skelter, but they were there because they're like, Oh yeah, our buddy uh, that we, we drop acid with is going to make it big and we'll be able to say we were there with him. What if, what if like yeah. Burnbright, he made it and became the next Elvis only <laughs> to make all of these people that now follow him kill? <laughs> uh, just one other thing. I know we're trying to move on. William Garrison, heaviest sleeper in the history of American crime. Back there in the guest house, slept <laughs> through all of that. Screams, stabbings, gunshots. Didn't know any of it until the cops burst in the, the house there back behind the main house. He had slept through all of that. I have heard that marijuana makes you a heavy sleeper. Man, that's a heavy-ass sleeper. (laughs) Okay, on to the TV movie. Hail to (laughs) Skeldow! Yeah, I like the soundtrack. (laughs) The one song. Alright, so if I can ever get it pulled up. Come on, Todd, this is you, man. Well, you guys have talked for two hours. Shit in a bed. You were prepared an hour ago. For this moment to arrive. <laughs> All right. Uh, I can't even think of a Beatles song to make you kill yourself, too. Have you seen the little piggies? Helter Skelter, 1976. Um, I don't have the dates. There, I think it was April, uh, two-night April miniseries. First. It was a two-part miniseries. uh, I think it premiered on CBS. I did find, uh, because this was before all of our times, um, I did find that uh, they were talking about for a while that they didn't want to air it in California because it's only a few years after um, all the Manson stuff anyways, but I think they aired it at a later time maybe, something like that. 
Um, so, director Tom Tom Grise, starring George Desenzo, uh, Steve Rell's back, uh, who's pretty big in the horror role. Uh, Nancy Wolf, Marilyn Burns. Um, the only other name I uh, that I could really find that's that's relevant today is uh, John Grise. I'm assuming the director's son, who is uh, in Napoleon Dynamite. Uncle and, Rico. Uh, yeah. Uncle Rico. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so I'm not sure who he played in the movie because I didn't know he was in it. He played uh, uh, William Garretson. Yeah, okay. the heavy sleeper. Oh, well. So um, so this film's connected to Napoleon Dynamite. Um, yeah, so uh, I want to say probably on TV, this was probably a four-hour movie. So two-night event. Um, and that's most of the details I have. So The uh, IMDb. The IMDb page of um, the trivia facts, uh, uh, kind of like uh, one of the last ones that we we did. It, man, it, they're brutal. On uh, I'm like, could you not find anything in the movie? So it's like talking about how um, some of the facts with the cases and uh, like the cars they use were actually two years older than when the murders would have happened. So I mean, when you got rich that far, yeah, that, that's reaching, movie, especially for a TV movie that says that some of the facts and names have been changed. You know what I mean, like. Yeah. That's gosh, come on. I think the other one might have been like an outfit that that Sharon Tate was wearing and um so it was pretty petty stuff. I watched this. I remember my dad had talked about it when I was reading Buliosi's book in high school. I don't remember how I got a hold of this, but I did end up getting a hold of it in high school and watching it. And uh was really impressed with the performance uh of Charlie not that Charlie played in the movie, but you know what I mean. So, uh, uh, and, and Relsback played, uh, I don't think it was one of the better Ed Geins, but he played Ed Gein and, uh, when they started redoing all of those movies. Fun fact. But I, thought that, I thought they captured Charlie's essence within the movie with that actor really, really well. And yeah. for a television movie, this thing is really good in my opinion. Yes. Like, I think this is a fantastic made-for-TV movie. I, I have I not watched this in a in quite a long time, and so I put it on, and I'm watching it. It's later at night. I think the score was pretty creepy, and it was actually in moments it was kind of scary. And it's a '70s TV movie, um, so I think uh, similar. I, I, maybe they put it out on VHS or something, but I think later in high school, I, maybe the library carried a copy. That might have been um, how I saw it. But um, yeah. yeah, finally getting to watch it. Of course, it wasn't what. You know, when, when my mom, probably, I'm, I'm going to assume my mom didn't want me to look into it, mainly probably because of Sharon Tate and uh, what they did to her. So Well, um, and your mom was of that generation. Yeah, that's true. You too. know what I mean? Um, but, um, so it just made me want to seek it out more. And then, you know, when you're watching it, it's, uh, God, the stuff they did anyways. And, and the, again, for a TV movie, it, it, it goes further than you would expect, uh, especially the time period that it came out. Um, not only because it's in the 70s, but because it's also a few years after all of this went down. So, um, Yeah, it's not too terribly long afterwards. I did see that, I guess, the Manson family car is actually the Manson family car. Um, and um, not the Tate property, but the other house, I think, is the actual location. Yeah. Um, so, again, they're also filming just a few years later where, um, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure even at this time period – Things were still probably pretty deep because this is uh, only, you know, 
it's several years after the murders, but not, I mean, the, the court. Can you imagine living in one of those houses now? Uh, I watched an episode of a ghost hunting show where a guy lives in the old Tate house and he wanted them to come out and investigate because he thought some weird shit was going on. That is actually, thank um, you. That is actually talked about a lot because the red hot chili peppers actually filmed um, one of the records there because it's um, probably not because of that, but because just the, the lore of it, they were talking about how um, even at that time that there's this, this huge legend of how the house is haunted. Yeah, Trent Reznor moved in there and wrote and recorded the Downward Spiral, which is where you get March of the Pigs and some of the tie-ins with that into that album. He took the door with him that that had that written on, um, but it was demolished. That was not too long after there. Um, Another. Oh, you know what? The thing that I had watched, it was the new house that had been built on, on the ground. Property. Yeah. yeah. And so the guy was like, oh, yeah, there's some weird stuff going on. But the So they did tear the house down? Yeah. Yeah, the house was okay. torn down. Uh, okay. Fun fact, my dad backed into the driveway in 1987 <laughs> when we were out there on vacation because Rudolph Valentino's famous home is right there by it. And we went up to see Falcon Lair, which is where he had lived. And my dad didn't realize that's where that was. And he backed in uh, into the driveway there to turn around and was like, holy shit. Did, uh, Leo, funny. did uh, Leonardo DiCaprio come out and fucking yell at you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was your dad trying to sell a radio alarm clock? <laughs> Touche. A funny thing that I find with uh, how Hollywood portrays things Hollywood. is in Hel- Helter Skelter, the Hammer Films Red Blood that yeah. it's written in, and then when you see the actual photos from the crime scenes, which were hours later, blood is not that color once it yeah. has been wiped Neon onto red. something and dried. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I like that. Uh, I, I, I don't think that's the Beatles in the TV movie, but I love that no. they probably still paid a good chunk that they're like, you're playing this. Every time somebody says Helder Skelter, that song oh, yeah. <laughs> There is a... Uh... There's a ton of songs from the White Album re-recorded for that. Like, yep. even when uh, Kasabian's reflecting back on first getting picked up and going out there, it's playing a song that was a deep cut from the White Album. Uh, I think it was, like, a uh, long, long time or something like that. But mm-hmm. it goes through throughout the film. One thing I noticed this go-around watching it is that Rob Zombie's definitely a fan. Then I thought about it, and he'd had Steve Rails back in something. And so he, I feel he was like... Devil's rejects. Yeah, so some of that washed out, like bleachy look to this film, I think, influenced Zombie in a lot of ways with that. But the, my main takeaway from from the TV film is that probably until Zodiac, this was probably the most accurate true crime film. This is taken directly from the prosecutor's book, and yeah. when you read the book, there isn't a bunch of difference between what you see put on screen, even down to the quotes. It is almost verbatim throughout, and what it's really evolved into besides being a TV movie that's aged incredibly well um, because it's, it's, it feels eerily accurate because it's presented in documentary style. But on top of that, it's turned into basically a, a, a living artifact because they went to some of the real places with only within a matter of just a few years. And so you are in Los Angeles in a time that doesn't exist anymore. And yeah. it's filmed fairly close, you know, to when this right. happened. And I think that mixed with the 
you know, the good acting and the score put to it. All jokes aside about And the, the acting movie. is really good, especially for a TV movie. Oh, yeah, those act- the actresses playing the Manson girls were fantastic. I'm glad you mentioned I, that because I wanted to highlight Nancy Wolf, who plays Atkins. She is really good in that. Yeah. Yes. Yes, she is. I, I think another thing that saves the movie is that uh, it's mostly the it's mostly courtroom, and there's yeah. not a lot of uh, what they might have thought happened out at the Manson Ranch or, or you know or other stuff. It sticks to kind of like the facts they knew, and mostly it's in the courtroom. And I think that's what uh, makes the movie so good. Yeah. I think the the opening with bringing in Roman's friend and agent to identify people is particularly effective, especially for a TV movie. It's very tough to watch him identify these people, some of whom were his friends. And that's really how it happened because Roman was out of the country. And so that's who they brought down. And you get a very sobering introduction to the story that doesn't glorify or sensationalize anything it's saying this is what happened he was out of town and back then he could have come back without getting arrested (laughs) burn well it's funny too because the film portrays just kind of how shoddy police work was back then like this is pre like csi oh my god God, the one cop like basically falls like he's dragging like i don't know if it was a body bag or clothing or he's stepped oh yeah and dragging it on his foot Yes. Or when they're when it like grabs the gun that the little kid knew not to pick up, yeah. his yeah. hands all over it, and like they they they're like, oh look, this button's got blood on it for the gate, and then he touches it to open the gate, and I'm like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that really happened too with the news crew getting taking in the car the and driving the route, taking off their clothes to try and time roughly with the descriptions from Atkins' testimony. The cops didn't go look into that. No. TV crews did, and they found it, and it made the cops look extra bad with that. And also a very bizarre moment when the news crew flirts with the girls driving by. Why yes. is that in there? <laughs> <laughs> and the, how the dad has to keep calling the police department, like, I think that gun <laughs> was used at the Tate murders. And they're right. like, the one that you're talking about missing the grip is exactly like the one that was missing the grip. <laughs> they're like, Shut up, nerd. We threw it in the trash. Yeah. <laughs> I like that uh, if this was remade today, the, every time a little kid would come back on, it'd be like, fuck the police. <laughs> well, and I can tell you what, it was hard for LAPD to come back on it because your own DA, your prosecutor, it's his book. This isn't Hollywood yeah. doing this. This is yep. his book. This is fact. Which Bugliosi, like, through time, this, this took a piece of that man's soul. Oh, it yeah. ended up being his life. Yes. Yeah. And to this day, like, Bugliosi ain't trying to have any of these motherfuckers get out for nothing. Nope. No. <laughs> so he's still... One of my favorite moments is, is, that he, must be he openly admits to is that uh, when Susan Atkins went by the desk and grabbed his papers and ripped them in half, and he stood up and called her fucking bitch right in front of everybody. <laughs> As I say, so if he's, it must be the actor that portrayed him that's that's passed away. But he died. He died on August eighth. So I couldn't oh, remember no. if it was that guy playing him or. Uh, I think Bugliosi's still alive, isn't he? Yeah, the actor. So, did. so it must be the actor. I was, that's uh, that's probably the only relevant. Uh, other than again, you brought up the Beatles thing. Somebody pointed out that um, on the side that Helder Skelter was on would have been the Apple Split, and I was like, you guys tried really hard to find. Uh, <laughs> yeah, just like Charlie's movie. Um, they they did 
I don't know if it was made for TV, TV or Showtime. They did remake this in the t early 2000s. I think I watched it I once. Saw it, it, listed. it wasn't it wasn't bad, but it wasn't good either. Here's um, an interesting take on that: is you can watch it like a prequel to the original Helder Skelter. It focuses much more on think about that. leading up to that. Huh. Jeremy Davies from Lost plays Manson, and he studied him. He's got his mannerisms down. Whether you like the performance or not, he is infuriating, just like Manson would have. Been. I did. I, it's huh. not that I dislike the movie either. It just for me the the original movie. Just was way better. Do so. we touch on that Manson sure. is like five foot three? <laughs> no, so that's probably Tom being Cruise, generous. So Tom Cruise <laughs> should be planning. That's probably why he was <laughs> a good device. That's Tom Cruise's next movie. The smallest guy in prison. Yeah, no, that's probably true. Yeah. Good times. Yeah, I really didn't have a whole lot of notes on the movie. Be, I mean, and that's kind of how these true crime case uh, studies have been, but they don't get a lot have, wrong. I didn't have a lot of notes because I was completely entertained even within that three-hour movie. I will say something that uh, stuck out to me, and, and it, it is true. It was, a, it was definitely a crime back then, but they, along with like murder and stuff, of the big things they want to point out is that he is bisexual. Yeah, that, like that's a list of his uh, he's, mental he, he, ailments. He sent them out. Bisexual. There's murder. He's raped. He's bisexual. All yeah, that that's like one of the defects they fucking list for Charles Manson. Which mental, I wanted, uh, I bisexual. Think even when the TV movie came out, that might have still kind of been right borderline of uh of some states that still being illegal. Actually, so. oh, probably. Yeah. Um, I want a couple of things I want to mention before we wrap up. Um, earlier this year, I visited some of the locations. Um more tied into the film Once Upon a Time in Hollywood uh, because I'm a fanboy fanatic for it. But uh, while there, some of that did tie into real locations from this case. And But one that wasn't a part of the movie that I did seek out was I did go out to Spawn Ranch in Chatsworth. Um, I am deathly afraid of snakes. Like, I can't properly articulate how scared of snakes I am. I've uh, it. But times. I was willing to take that risk because there are rattlesnakes everywhere out there. So all I kept reading about is if you go out here, be careful because it's undeveloped land at this point. So there's nothing left of spawn ranch, but I did go out to the grounds where there's a lot of footage of them down in the Creek, uh, where they'd go down and swim naked as a family. But there was a famous picture, uh, under a, uh, kind of like an, it's not a cave, but kind like of like a rock that enclave. Yeah. And so that picture showed up in Time Life, and it's identical. Uh, and up until, I think, about two years ago, there were parts of stolen cars still wedged into trees and everywhere else out there. Um, and it's widely believed that the family killed anywhere up to around 35, 40 people. And there are a lot of people that think some of them are out in that area. And I didn't really give it much thought till we were there. And it was just, there was a palpable creepiness to the area. And then I start, I kind of got my own head about it. I was like, man, I wonder if horrible things happened down here because where we visited, it was more just to take a look at where a, an innocent picture had been taken a moment in history from this goofy group. Um, but it, it's, it really started to feel a little bit more sinister down there. Um, I, I went to Cielo drive, but only at the base of it where they went up on foot and parked their car. And that was because it was in once upon a time in Hollywood. But Again, it it just it felt odd being there. Um, went to El Coyote and had dinner where 
Sharon and her friends had had dinner that night beforehand, which is right down the street from Tarantino's theater, uh, which they reference in the movie. But I did at least want to to mention I I'd spend uh, a whole day going around Los Angeles to some of this stuff. But I I thought listeners might find it interesting, in particular the the grounds there where Spawn Ranch was and how damn creepy it was. And if you go to the Instagram page, you can see where he recreated the nude photos of him swimming on Spawn Ranch. Yes. Yes. Got yelled at. Um, <laughs> and that's, that's no rattlesnake in the photo, ladies. <laughs> Me, gal. Uh, and then just uh, one other thing I wanted to mention that people probably would never know unless they looked into it that I, I find fascinating is that you can find Manson's music from two different massive, massive recording artists. Uh, the Beach Boys completely stole one of his songs, uh, and you can hear that on their album, ironically, 2020 is the name of the album, um, and it's called Never Learn Not to Love, and they completely lifted his song. And then Guns N' Roses covered uh, Look at Your Game Girl, which is a hidden track on the Spaghetti Incident. And so Manson did get his music out in that way, and his album Lie is on any streaming service. It's no longer hard to get to. So if you're interested in hearing how bad or good it was, it's readily available. Also, Oops, I Did It Again from Britney Spears was also <laughs> co-written by Manson. <laughs> and uh, Time Life is coming out with a collection very soon. Nice. <laughs> oh, boy. I'm ready to be done talking about Charles Manson. Yes. I just hope he doesn't win again in the election. Uh, just really crazy to do a deep dive into the case and just find out how just really unorganized and stupid the whole thing was. Yeah, served no purpose other than None. a desperate guy trying to figure out how to to keep doing what he wanted. A bunch of people died for no reason. And not only people died, how many young people threw their lives away yep. for this shit for brains, Charles Manson? And, and that's counting the people who were charged with murder. Every single one of these family members had their life ruined. There's a great yep. book, if, if anybody's interested. Uh, it's called Member of the Family by Diane Lake. And she went on to have three children, uh, a fairly normal life, uh, a teacher of children with autism, has really tried to make something meaningful of herself. I think she's authored uh, upwards of 10 books before this one that dealt with her time there. But she had nothing to do with hurting anybody. Yeah. Uh, but even with her, she received a call in 2008 from somebody saying, are you Diane Lake? Because we figured out that you would have had to tell certain things on where bodies were. And we're going out to excavate the land at Spawn Ranch. And you're the, you're the one we've traced that would have had to tell the police officer because this officer took her in and adopted her because he saw something in her after the Manson case and gave her a chance and kept her safe until she was able to be a witness anyways so she went all the way to 2008 and then had to tell her children because she kept it from them i mean wow. these, all of these people in that family never can fully escape it including no. one who didn't do anything wrong who literally just wanted to party out at a ranch who yeah, just wanted to live in a flop house covered in chiggers and uh yeah <laughs> with the guy they thought would become a musical superstar they, and they did uh, they did have a, I think ABC had a, last, maybe last summer, they had a, like a revisiting with some of the, the Manson girls. Um, so I think she might have been one of them they talked to because um, 
one of them I'm pretty sure that they spoke to is not not in prison, so it had to be somebody that was Linda just, Kasabian yeah. recently was part of a documentary on that I just watched for this and it, it was, was excellent. Yes, it was very good. I watched that one in preparation for this. Yeah. Um, Gypsy is another one that does a lot of interviews and recounts yep. and stuff. But uh, I'll, I would just recommend to anybody watch uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood for some cathartic relief after you d- dive into this case. And I highly recommend watching Helter Skelter. That's yeah. Yeah. It's a great. I think it's a great movie. Yeah, I think I it's right up there. You know, as far as accuracy wise, you're right. It's right up there with Zodiac. But I think as far as great made-for-TV stuff, it's just so interesting that some of the best true crime films have been made for TV. We we talked yeah. about with Bundy and with Gacy, and now with with this one with Manson. So, and I, th- I think they can't exploit things on TV. Even better than uh, the Bundy one is that this one, because in uh, the Bundy one, just a few years later, they would have had even more details of. Yeah. Uh, then, then you yeah, always put in the movies concluded. Yeah, definitely. So. Glad to be done, but a fascinating case. Yeah, absolutely. So, wrapping up another episode of the Midwest Monsters Podcast, talking true crime, hating on Dirty Charlie Manson. I'm one of your hosts, <laughs> Grizzly Abner, and I've been joined by the exhausted Professor Wagstaff. I didn't write the music, Venomous Vinny. Hi, Toddy. <laughs> Stay scary, you dig? <laughs>